Well, I'll tell you what. Gerald, you do a pretty good job with these kids. That just goes to show you, it doesn't matter how old you are, you can minister to kids. <laughs> I'm not implying you're old, although my mother did used to take me to hear Gerald preach when I was just a little boy. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. So glad to see you here this morning. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 107. What a great week. Thanksgiving week. We get to think on the things that we're thankful for and grateful for. So I want to preach from Psalm 107. I'll tell you the story of a little schoolboy, fourth grader. The week of Thanksgiving, before Thanksgiving break began, she assigned them the assignment. Every student had to write a report on the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower and just come up with an idea, write a report about that. But there was a stipulation. And the stipulation was this. You cannot mention God. You cannot mention religion. You can't mention Jesus. You can't talk about anything like that. She said, because boys and girls, those things have nothing to do with school. Those things have nothing to do with your assignment. So I don't want you putting any of those things in your report. You just, you just talk about the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower. Well, this little fourth grade boy, he was a Christian little boy. He'd grown up in church. He knew the history of the pilgrims coming and why they came uh, for freedom to worship. Uh, the Lord God, how they saw fit, and he didn't really like her stipulation put on that. He felt that he should write and keep the story real in his report, but he didn't want to get a bad grade either. He couldn't afford a failing grade, so when he stood to give his report, it began and continued something like this. The pilgrims came here seeking the freedom of you-know-what. When they landed on shore, they gave thanks to you know who. Despite all they went through that first winter, they continued to meet together, you know when, to read and sing about you know who for reasons we all know why. <laughs> He's just keeping it real, right? Well, I'll tell you what, the Word helps us to keep it real about who Jesus is and about what God does for us. And so in Psalm 107, we're going to read this, and I've just entitled it, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Follow along with me. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. And He led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. On the way over here from Nacogdoches, as I was driving, I got to thinking about what kind of education our kids are getting in our universities. Those who graduate from high school and go on to a university, in not every case, but in many cases, they're going to encounter professors who are going to dis discredit the Word of God. They'll discredit holy God himself, as if he doesn't exist. In fact, they're going to require you to take a course 
uh, that is going to try to desensitize you to conservative biblical principles. They're going to desensitize you to the things of God, to the truth of His existence. They're going to tell you God doesn't exist. They're going to tell you homosexuality is right, lesbianism is right, anything else is right, and you're wrong. In fact, you're, you're really uh, a hypocrite if you think that those things are not okay. And so they're going to discredit God and everything about God and His Word. But one of the things that comes out from that is this. We recognize more and more when that happens that we are a fallen race. The human race is a fallen race. We think we don't need God. We think that God is here if we believe in Him. He's here just for us. We're not here for Him. We're self-sufficient though. We can, we can be without Him if we want. Or we can go and worship if we want. We can do whatever. It doesn't really matter because you see it's not about God. It's about us. And that's what the thinking is in our world today. The culture says, it's all about me. It's about me. And of course, we're not self-sufficient. We just think that we're self-sufficient. And the more we rely on ourselves, the further away we drift from God. God doesn't always stop us when we drift from Him. God doesn't always stop us when we reject Him. Sometimes He just allows us to go on, doesn't He? He allows us to be... That that we want to be. Sometimes God will let us suffer the consequences of our sin. Sometimes He will even fashion the situations of our life in order to cause us to come to an end of ourselves so that when we reach that end, we might turn to Him and recognize Him for who He is and have a wonderful, rightful fellowship with Him. Sometimes we have to come to an end of ourselves so we might call out to Him for deliverance. God, rescue me. Look at the mess my life's in. I can't do anything on my own. Rescue me. Deliver me from this pit. Deliver me from the enemy's hand. When God does that, it's then that we come to experience the loving kindness of God who doesn't give us what we deserve but instead redeems us from the pit. Therefore, the psalmist says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. That's the message of Psalm 107. In this chapter, he paints for us some portraits of people. Some portraits of people, and they're, they're all faced with terrible, horrible problems that they cannot fix. They cannot solve these issues. And I want us to look at three of these right here. There's really about four but two of them are caused by sin, and so I'm going to lump them together. But three of these I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see, beginning with verse 4 through 9, we have the wanderers. They are wandering around. When the Israelites returned from being in captivity in Babylon, they lacked security. They lacked stability. The place that they once called home, they were taken out of and sent to captivity for 70 years. And then when they returned, they came back in, in groups of... Uh, three different trips, three different expeditions. They were led back to the promised land and it was not the same as it was when they left. It was a disaster. The place was gone. I mean, homes were gone. Others had moved in and taken things over and God was going to give the land back to their hands. God had promised to bring them back. But they didn't find it to be the way they had expected. And so it was a terrible situation it was as if they, were, uh, they had nowhere to go. Their homes were gone. Their farms were gone. If 
they still existed at all. They were hungry, they were thirsty, they were fainting from exhaustion. And verse 6 says this, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. Isn't that a wonderful verse of Scripture? Then they cried out to the Lord, and He delivered them out of their distresses. So portrait number one is a portrait of the wanderers. These are people who are searching to find meaning in life. People, though, who have left the faith in God. Maybe they've drifted. Maybe they're backslidden condition. Or maybe altogether they have no faith in God. They're lost. They are lost sinners. They're spiritually corrupt. And their philosophy is this. We only live once. Therefore, let us eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That'll bless you, won't it? That's all there is in this life? Let's just eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we're going to die, so let's just live it up right now for the here and now. But that's the philosophy of the culture. But listen, if there's anything worse than a person being lost, it's to be lost and not know that you're lost. It's to be lost and not think that you're lost. It's to be lost and think that you're all right. What a horrible spiritual condition. I read about a boy... He and his brother, their grandma, took them to Disneyland. And if you've been to Disneyland, you know they have these little short parades that come through about every other hour or so. And, and when they got there, she bought them a little souvenir flag. They had a Disneyland flag. And so she took them to Disneyland there, bought them a flag. And at one point, they stopped to watch one of those parades go by. And then she looked down, and the youngest one was nowhere to be found. Well, if you've been to a place like that, you know that'll throw you into a panic right away. There's so many people. And she couldn't find him. She began to look through the crowd. She could find him nowhere. She had lost him. And so all of a sudden, she just happened to look up as the, the end of the parade was going by, and there he was. He had run to the back of the parade and was marching along behind the band, waving his little flag. He was lost. He didn't know he was lost. He was lost, but he didn't think he was lost. He was just going along with the rest of the group, going along, going parading on through life with everybody else at that time, doing what he wanted to do. And you know that's what people do in life. People are parading along, doing whatever the culture's doing, having a good old time. There was a time in each of our lives when we were like that. Marching along through life, doing what everyone else was doing. We were lost and we didn't know it. We were lost or we didn't believe it. We were lost, but maybe we didn't think it. Then God, by His Holy Spirit, convicted us at the heart concerning our condition and concerning who He was. You see, I don't believe God ever convicts us in the heart of our condition without also convicting us of His nature, of His purity, of His holiness of His awesomeness, of His sovereignty, that He is God and we are not. And sometimes God comes and, and, and He will come to the sinner and He'll convict them at the heart of their condition to cause them to see what their condition really is. And God does that for us. He comes and what does He say? He says, look, look fella, look lady, one day your parade's going to end. One day the music's going to stop, the band's going to quit playing, and you're going to be there. Where are you going to be after that? One day the clock of your life is going to stop ticking. Will you be with the Lord God in heaven, or will you be separated from Him in an eternal hell? 
God convicts us by His Spirit. He comes to do that. He comes because He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, lest we find ourselves spending eternity alone without a holy God. And so how does that happen? Well, He convicts us. Then this hunger begins to develop in our heart and life if we don't reject Him. If we don't reject Him and if we incline our hearts toward Him, then we know that this hunger begins to develop in our heart. We begin to desire to know Him. We begin to thirst for righteousness and to do right. And we call out to God. And what does He do? He saves us. He saves us. And the Bible says in this passage, He led them by the right way. And that's what God does. I'll tell you, I was one of those who went the wrong way. And when I gave my heart to Christ, I didn't have trouble finding the right way. Why? He led me in the right way. You know, a lot of people try to go in the right way while still walking in the wrong way. They're trying to go the right way. They're just not trying to go through Jesus. They want to look right, act right, and make, let people think they're right. But they're not right because they avoided Jesus. But when you turn to Jesus, He'll lead you in the right way. Can I have an amen this morning? Are y'all all right? Look to your neighbor and say, I'm okay. I'm okay. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. Listen, did He save you? Has He saved you? Give Him thanks. He's good. He's a good Heavenly Father. For He satisfies the longing soul and He fills the hungry soul with goodness. There's not a soul that's been hungry for God that He did not feel it if they chased after Him. Not one single soul. He will save those who look to Him. So here's the portrait of a wanderer. And my question to you would be, are you a wanderer this morning? Are you a wanderer? Look with me now at verse 17 and 18. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Now what's, what's this a picture of? This is a portrait of the sick. It's a portrait of those who think that they can sin without penalty. And they can go on marching in their parade, as we mentioned a while ago, without any penalty whatsoever, doing life without God, unconcerned about God, even if they are in the faith, unconcerned about their sin. But it's a portrait of those who have become physically sick. And why are they sick? Well, verse 17 says it's because of their sin, their transgression. The other word that's used there is iniquity. They have become sick because of their sin. And I would throw this out there and know this. Sickness is not always caused by sin. So don't walk away from here saying, I've just not been feeling good. It must be, it must be me. I must be a, a sinner. You know, Job had to deal with that. His three friends just about verbally beat up on him. Oh, you're sinning. You're just not admitting it. You're full of pride. You just need to lose your pride, have some humility. You know God has stricken you because of your sin. He said, I don't know of any sin in my life. And so God doesn't always allow us to be sick or cause us to be sick because of sin. But sometimes it is because of sin that we encounter sickness. We talked about that, about the Lord's Supper last week. He said, some of you take the Lord's Supper for the wrong reasons, or some of you come to it unworthily, and as you come to it unworthily, that's why some of you are sick. He said that, didn't he? Look what he calls them. He says, fools. 
fools. Why are they fools? Not because they're mentally challenged. Not because they're not intelligent. They are fools because they are rebellious. And verse 18 almost seems to describe for us perhaps a drug addict, a meth addict, or an alcoholic. It's the description of a body that's wasting away and has no desire for food. In fact, it only desires the chemical, whatever it is, that's whatever it's going after, it desires that. The food, uh, the, the body actually is rejecting food. It said the body abhors the food, doesn't even want it. Maybe they just need their next fix and that's it. But their body's wasting away. We're not told what the sin is. We're not even told exactly the sickness other than their body's wasting away and it, it won't take nourishment anymore. But whatever the case, God sometimes does allow people to become sick because of sinful rebellion. But the Bible says, looking in verse 19, what does the Bible say? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and He saved them out of their distresses. They turned to the Lord, they cried out to Him in their time of trouble and He saved them. Now listen here. They didn't deserve God's grace. They were in rebellion against God. They were in sin. But that's what grace is. It is undeserved favor that we would be guilty of sin, yet turn to the Lord in our time of distress, and He would show us favor and mercy and loving kindness. That's grace. That's who God is. Maybe you're in great trouble today because of sinful rebellion in your own life. And if so, I want, you to, I want you to know the devil would have you to think God would never receive you. God would never forgive the things that you've done. But that's not true. That's the old devil. That's the person, that's our enemy, the devil. The Bible says he's our enemy. Why is he our enemy? Because he's leading us to hell. He doesn't want us to find God. He doesn't want us to walk in victory. He doesn't want us to have the abundant life that we're promised. If you'll call out to God, if you'll repent and turn to Him, He will forgive you and He will deliver you from your sin. He'll make a way in the wilderness and He will pour down on you like the rain in a desert place. That's what He does. He's a God of mercy. That word mercy, there in that verses 1 or 2, I think it's verse 1, that word mercy really means goodness. It's not, it's, it means loving kindness. That's the literal way that word translates. He will pour on you His loving kindness. All that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. And then last we see an interesting portrait. See how he describes them in verse 23, if you would. He describes them like ships who've gone out to sea to do business. They're merchants. That's what they do. They go to other places and they carry goods to and fro. But on this excursion, they find themselves being tossed about beyond their control in a huge storm. And I believe it's a portrait of the overwhelmed those who are overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. Look with me in verse 25. 
For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. What are those waves like? They mount up to the heavens, and then they go down to the depths. They are huge waves that he's describing here. Massive waves. And who causes these waves? Were the waves caused by their sin? Was there someone on board, perhaps, like Jonah, who had disobeyed God and rebelled against God and so now was under the judgment of God. He got on a ship headed for Tarshish and then they encountered a horrible problem. They decided, hey, we need to throw this guy overboard. He knew he was disobedient. Was there a guy like Jonah on board being disobedient to God? Well, no, we don't see that. But look with me in verse 25. Why are they encountering the storm? Listen. God commanded the storm to come. God commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. Where are these huge waves coming from? Well, we've got this uh, environmental situation out here, this uh, weather system that's coming through and the waves are coming up and boy, they're billowing and they're, they're massive and they're huge. That's what it is. No, I mean, that's what it is. But who's in control of that? God's in control of that, and He has caused it to come. Now, what about these sailors, these merchantmen that do their business day to day out on the open seas? Well, we could know that they were trained. They knew what they were doing. They were skilled in seamanship. They were sailors. They were merchants, but they were sailors. This was their business day in and day out. Yet God put them in a situation they could do nothing about. Nothing. Look at verse 27. I love this description. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. So they were drunk. They were drunk. No, they weren't drunk. But that's what they were like. They had feet problems. They couldn't walk. No, no. They're on board a ship and it's about to go down. They are reeling to and fro and are at their wit's end. Now I can remember my mother saying to me when I was a kid, you irritated me to no end. And I knew what that meant. I had exceeded the limitations of her medications. And I was about to be in trouble. I was about to get a good old whooping. I had irritated her to no end. But I didn't bring her to her wit's end. The word wit means wisdom. We think just to be witty is to be smart and, and or or. or Short and funny and silly, but it kind of is. It's to have a quick, wise response, but it's a negative in the way that we look at it. The word wit literally means to be skillful or wise. But when you add the word end to it, wit's end, it means you've come to the end of your skill. You've come to the end of your wisdom. You've exhausted your mental resources and you can think of nothing else to do about your situation. You are at wit's end. Now some of you paying attention to this, if you're listening, I'm about to rock your doctrinal theology. 
because you've been a false teacher for a long time. But I'm going to straighten your theology out right now. For years, some of you have told people, God will never give us more than we can handle. And it's not in the Bible. It's not implied in Scripture. It's not literally in Scripture anywhere that God will never give you more than you can handle. You're a false teacher if you teach people that. Because I'm telling you right here in this passage, these merchant men out on the ocean have more than they can handle. God gave them more than they can handle. Well then, Brother Crispin, where am I all messed up in my theology? I've heard that all my life. What you've heard is God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to withstand, but will make a way of escape. That's about being tempted to sin. God won't allow you to be tempted with sin. You can never blame God and say, I would have been all right if God had just brought me out of that, if God would have protected me from that. He did. He made a way of escape and you didn't take it. Okay? But God will give you more than you can handle when it comes to situations in life. Why would He do that? Why does He do that? Well, let me just say this before that. Quit being a false teacher. In fact, you ought to look at somebody and say this. Sometimes God will let you go through more than you can handle. Sometimes God will give you more than you can handle. It comes from Him. You ought to tell them the truth. Verse 27, they reel to and fro and they straggle. So they stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. But boy, you've got to go on. Then, then, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and He brings them out of their distresses. I'm not reading the same verse over and over again. It sounds like it. I mean, this is on and on in this song. It's like the re- recurring motive. It's, a, it's the theme that comes back again. They're in distress. They're in trouble. They have nowhere to go. No help is in sight. And they cry out to God and He rescues them. What a great rescuer we have. What a great redeemer we have. And look what He does. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. The waves are quiet. So he guides them to their desired, their desired haven. Why would God ever give me more than I can handle? I mean, he's a loving God. You're preaching the loving kindness of God. Why does he give me more than I can handle? I'm just going to give you three simple reasons. The first one is in verse 1. Why would God allow me to go through that? Why would he even put that upon me? that we might give thanks to the Lord when He rescues us. Look at verse 43, that we might know the loving kindness of the Lord. See, when I, when I experience the loving kindness of the Lord, I come to know Him in a way I didn't know Him before. I come to trust Him in a way I would have never trusted Him before if not for the circumstance He put me in or brought my way even perhaps. And then I can do a verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And then verse 2, To give me some say-so. To give us something to proclaim. To give us a testimony. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
Let those that he has brought out of the pit, they have something to say. To say, Let them say it. To those who were brought out of the, the sea, when they staggered to and fro, they, they were at their wits end, didn't know what to do, but called out to the Lord and he rescued them. Why? To give you some say-so. To give you something to shout about. To give you something to proclaim. Tell it. Share it. That's why He does it. That we might know His loving kindness. That we might give thanks to Him. And that we might tell it. That we might have some say so. And declare what God has done. Declare His great name. So here's the invitation. To the wanderer, come home. To the wanderer, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Have you drifted out there? I love the song that uh, the girls sang months ago, and I think we've sang it since then when Brandon was here. Are you tired of the load of your sin or the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. His arms are open wide. There's forgiveness there. To the wanderer, come home. To the sick who, who knows they're sick because of sin. And it's giving you emotional or physical trouble as a result, certainly spiritual trouble. Repent, turn to the Lord, call on Jesus, and experience the goodness and favor of the Lord. The message couldn't be any more clear than that. And then the overwhelmed. You're here today, you're at your wit's end. You don't know what to do about a situation in your life. You're, you're, you're confused. You're staggering to and fro because you just you are clueless. You say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I've tried everything I can try, and I just don't know. I'm at my wit's end. I would tell you there's a reason for it, and it's this. God is doing something greater in your life right now than what you know. Time will tell it. He's doing something greater. He's leading you to a greater level of faith, perhaps. He's leading you on to a greater level of maturity. He's preparing you, perhaps, to grow and mature in the faith. Turn to Him. Call out to Him. And He will bring you out of your distress.